Hey there, friends. I hope you're well. Welcome to episode one of the eighth Juror Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Wiggins. I'm sure you're already wondering, eighth juror? How'd he come up with the name? Why did he pick the eighth juror? What does it even mean? We'll get to all that. Hopefully, it will be plainly obvious before the end of this first episode. Your next question is probably then, what is this podcast about? We'll get to that too. Just not yet. Where I'd like to start, where I think is the best place to start, is with the why. I feel like the why is the most important reason for what I'm hoping this podcast will be. Why this podcast? What's the purpose of it? Why do I think it's worth putting yet another podcast out into the world? Why do I hope you will find it worth listening to? When I look out at the world at large, like many of you, I'm sure, I get worried. The prospects are not looking so great. Sure, there's many great things occurring and progress is being made, but it's hard to keep the focus there and remain hopeful. It doesn't really feel to me like the positive and the good is winning out. It feels like the darkness outweighs the light. It feels like the world's burning. We've just come through a pandemic. The economy is arguably in a recession, whether admitted by governments or not. There's war on Ukraine with global implications. Layoffs are occurring in droves. AI's recent rapid development has the world on edge. Politics is growing increasingly divisive and polarized. And we haven't even touched on any of the issues at a societal level. There are a multitude of topics that seemingly have the whole of society split into opposing camps on each and every one of them. It's also very disheartening and discouraging. It's hard to have hope and hold faith that it will get better. Hope's not a plan, though, and faith can only go so far. Action must be taken. All of these concerns of humanity present an opportunity, our opportunity to overcome the challenges of our era. They're most definitely the most advanced issues we have ever faced as a humanity, but we've also never been better equipped. The unfortunate part? What is the greatest tragedy is that despite our capabilities, we're stalled. Stalled by our inability to move forward collectively as we are so divided and marred by disagreement on how to move forward at all. With the technological advancements and social platforms we have at our disposal today, we've never been so easily connected as a people, but yet we remain so disconnected as a whole. An oxymoron, I know. But if you think about our most frequent interactions, they are mostly driven by algorithms. Some social app led you to find your people, or your person, maybe even to this podcast. The apps that drive your life point you to the things you find most interesting. Interesting in the sense that you're willing to engage and give your attention to. This does not necessarily insinuate positive feeling, however. Your interests also lie significantly in what you find most enraging, unfair, or even scary. Folks similar to yourself, facing similar struggles and understanding of your experience can be found in abundance online. It's a beautiful thing, to be and feel understood by folks that see you the way you see yourself. And it's phenomenal that we've been able to advance to the point where the barriers are so insignificant to finding a community you feel at home with. Unfortunately, for every action, there's a reaction. Newton's third law. In this case, I would argue the reaction to finding your community is greater discontentment with society as a whole from your increased interaction with echo chambers. Echo chambers that assure you you are validated in your grievances, should be angry from being oppressed, and are diametrically opposed to a tribe or team from another echo chamber with a different view. Or maybe it's not just the opposition, but rather your community's oppressor your echo chamber is realizing is to be contended with. 
You're angry. You have every right to be. Things are not going so well. Life is hard and it seems like every day there's some reason why it's about to get harder. You need some reprieve, a little distraction. So you turn to your echo chambers of traditional and social media that flood you with reasons as to why things are so hard for you. With a puppy video slipped in every once in a while to cheer you up a touch and give you a little giggle at the cuteness. You're told that things aren't going so great because of some other group. Because of them. And in the opposing echo chambers, you become their them. Sometimes both groups are a little right. Sometimes one is completely right and the other completely wrong. Either way, the anger builds, the fire is fueled, and the division grows. There's so much anger. Anger that leads to argument and rarely yields productive discourse. Reason seems fleeting and mutual understanding ever more difficult to achieve. The wedge is driven more deeply and the distance between more near to becoming insurmountable. The opportunity we currently have to build a bridge is being squandered and the chasm between is soon to be too great. This we cannot accept. We cannot continue to allow ourselves to be so binary in our division. We are one. One humanity, all facing the same existential issues with the same goal of overcoming them. If we cannot even find our way to effectively discussing how to solve them collectively, then how can we ever expect to overcome them when we're too busy fighting about whose fault it is rather than how we can work together to fix it? Maybe now you have a bit of an idea as to the why of the podcast, but I'll lay it out a little more directly. I'm not necessarily qualified to make any judgment, and I very well could be completely wrong. In fact, I hope I am, and this podcast is a platform to help me see that. Here it is, though. When I look out at the world, I see pain, fear, some hope, moments of happiness, and rampant division. I see reason coming from all sides, but no willingness to attempt understanding between each other. I see good intent and poor execution. I see the division growing and the willingness for compromise disappear. From my perspective and driven by my appetite for seeking knowledge, I see missed opportunity and an existing need. An opportunity to de-escalate and a need to facilitate understanding. By no means am I under any impression that I am THE person for the job. I just feel compelled to try and be someone who tries to do the job. I'm willing to try. I don't feel as though I can sit idly by anymore and watch the fabric of society be fought over and torn in the process. Even if my attempts are futile and my impact insignificant, I'm still willing to try. I volunteer to be a sort of middleman, a mediator and maybe sometimes an arbitrator if needed. Someone who is able to work towards knowledge and understanding without being derailed. Through my own curiosity and voracious appetite for knowledge, I want to learn from diverse opinions and perspectives while demonstrating that despite differing views, good sense can prevail. When good sense prevails, there are no losers. Everybody wins. I cannot bring myself to believe that silencing, shouting down, or attempting to extinguish differing views will end in a desired result. For one ideology to succeed in being uncontested as singularly acceptable, another must be defeated. Nobody who believes in their ideologies is willing to go down without a fight, though. Obviously. So the stakes get ramped up as attacks occur to preempt attacks while claims of it being defensive are made. Then there must be retaliation, of course. Retaliation that feeds the anger and resolves the hate in the victim. The cycle continues and spirals out of control. What if there could be a small dent made in attempting to slow the spin? What if we could set aside our anger and defensiveness and work towards reasoning? 
I have to hope it's possible. The alternative is not very promising. In a world where we accept there can only be one winner, we must also accept there must be a loser. If we think there's no way we're going to be the loser, I propose we realize they also believe the same thing. This makes either side just as likely to be either the winner or the loser. Maybe it's not the same odds as a coin toss, but can you honestly say your side will win for sure? Are you willing to take the risk if there could be attempts made at an alternative instead? I suggest we start thinking we're actually all losing as a result of our needing to win out. And if we want to continue the fight, we're all just as likely to end up on the losing end. So maybe we work towards lowering the risk? Hopefully, through this platform, we can explore working towards shared knowledge. Taking the stance of being curious and seeking understanding together. Maybe not finding agreement or mutual compromise, but at the very least, exploring the reason. I plan to try to do so from the perspective of a curious and innocent child. When everything is unknown and it is magical to learn, constantly craving more information until we get to either, I don't know, or because I said so. I always hated because I said so. It's so lazy. What makes you the authority? If it's just that you don't know, tell me what you do know and let's work together to figuring out what comes next. Please don't tell me to just stop asking and take you at your word and accept your authority. I want to continue to ask. I'm genuinely curious and would never fault you for not having all the answers. I want to keep asking questions and trying to gain understanding, while also challenging some concepts. Wouldn't this also increase your understanding? See. I want to go beyond anger or appeal to authority to engage with the childlike curiosity, but I'll also do it through the lens of whatever wisdom I've developed over my years. I won't be contented if I cannot arrive at logic or reason in the answers. Maybe I might cause some to rethink a position as a result. It couldn't hurt, could it? By no means am I intending to prove anyone wrong. I just want to see if you could help me become as sure as you are. I have a lot of doubt. I waffle and I have a hard time seeing the world in black and white. I see gray, a spectrum of gray shades that are sometimes more black and sometimes more white, depending on the topic and currently available information, the data to be considered as part of the equation. I think it's almost more apt to say, if you haven't seen where I'm going yet, that I see mostly purple between what we experience in our cultural lives as red and blue. I can never find my way to all red or all blue, just black or white. Binary. I'm really not sure how anybody could. For clarity, I mean binary in the sense of two options, diametrically opposed. Maybe not where you thought I was going after making mention of cultural differences. So, either I want to hear from those who can choose what their reasoning is and maybe find my way to agreement, or more likely that we can realize we can find reasonable alternatives that are more widely accepted. Maybe the widely accepted stance is not quite right, and all the way to good, but I propose it's more likely to lead in that direction if we're willing to move forward and continue learning, rather than fighting to no reasonable end. Don't get me tripped up yet on my right. I meant it in the context of accepted as correct or not, not in the context of directionality, implying political leanings. Don't try to pin me yet. I can't even pin myself. That's kind of the point here if you haven't realized that yet. I hope that the value in the why can be seen. Now, I want to talk about the how. How do I hope to approach this complex situation and work towards making a positive change? Well, I guess I'll start by presenting some concepts and ideas. 
provide you with a glimpse into the way I see how the problems are playing out, and suggest perspective changes on managing them. In this first episode, I plan to discuss some probability theory, an iconic story's metaphorical significance, a favorite quote, and a profound fable. Stick with me. Maybe this sounds too much like school, and that doesn't interest you. Don't think of it that way, though. Please, I'm not here to preach, lecture, or even teach. I'm here to learn, with you and from you. I'm exceptionally curious, and I'm trying to piece together all of what I think I currently understand into cohesive philosophical ideas. Ideas on what perplexes me most, and I'm hoping many of you as well. Why, with humanity's propensity and capacity for reason, logic, knowledge, understanding, empathy, and compassion, do we still have so much conflict, seemingly increasing discord? Could we not yet, in our maturity as a species, find more harmony and achieve greater progress? Have we not yet advanced sufficiently? How could it be? Must we continue this zero-sum game? Must we constantly ramp it up? These are the questions that persist in my mind. Maybe that sounds like it could be interesting to you? Wrestling with the fundamental issues of humanity? Tackling greatest blockers to advancement as we look to the future that many feel only grows bleaker? I want to see if we can find more light in the darkness by shining some of our own. That, right there, is my passion. Thinking these questions through, looking for solutions and trying to put them in place through thinking out loud and discussion to allow for ideas to blossom and grow, hearing ideas and challenging them so they may be solidified or even fall apart if they must, and potentially arriving at agreement on the premise of the discourse. Hopefully, you're sufficiently sold on the concept that this might be an enjoyable journey to take together, if you weren't already at the beginning of this episode. So, let's jump into some statistical principles first. Where I want to start first, and hopefully I don't bore you with it, is quickly breaking down my understanding of the theory of normal distribution and probability. There's some links in the description if you want greater detail or some visuals beyond what I'll offer here. The theory of normal distribution states that if you have number of occurrences on the y-axis of a graph, the vertical, and a spectrum of the characteristic being measured on the x-axis, the horizontal, The greatest number of occurrences will be found in the center, and the remaining occurrences will be evenly distributed on each side in decreasing quantities. Mirror images about the middle, creating the shape of a bell. So let me give you an example to help with our understanding. I'm 6'1". According to a site I referenced and included in the description, the average male height from 20 countries in North America, Europe, East Asia, and Australia is 5'9". I never really thought of myself as tall, but I'm four inches taller than the average male, and apparently the 84th percentile in height. That means I'm taller than 83.99% of males from these countries. That seems so crazy to me. Only 16% of men are taller? According to the data, that seems to be the case. The data shows that only 5% of men from these countries are taller than six foot four. I guess that's not so hard to believe. I rarely meet anyone that I have to look up at to make eye contact with. I digress, and maybe have gone on a bit of a tangent. Like height, you can take just about any measurable characteristic, take the measure across a set of subjects, and you'll end up with a normal distribution, be it height, weight, shoe size, IQ, etc. Virtually all measurable characteristics will fall into a bell curve if sufficient measurements are captured. Once you have that data collected, 
you'll find that 68% of instances will be within one sigma of the mean. 95% will be within two sigma. If you're interested, the references will go into greater detail on the significance of sigmas from the mean. Suffice it to say, for our purposes, that 68% of subjects will be found to have the measured characteristic close to the average, with pretty minimal deviation. Bringing male height back in, that means 68% of males are between 5'7 and 6'1. So, if you met a random male from any of the 20 countries where the data was collected from, you would have slightly more than a two-thirds probability they would be somewhere between 5'7 and 6'1. Those are much better odds than a coin flip. The probability they would be between 5'4 and 6'4 is 95%. For the random male you met to be shorter than 5'4 or taller than 6'4, the probability will be less than 5%. Hopefully you're still with me. Hopefully I didn't bore you or confuse you. And hopefully, you feel comfortable with some knowledge of normal distribution and probability. With this context in mind, I want to finally get to the point. Well, a point, anyway. I want to present a ridiculous imaginary situation to you. I would like for you to suspend your knowledge of reality for a little while sharing this moment and explore this proposed alternate reality with me. Within this alternate reality... We're going to focus on the normal distribution of foot size and the whole concept of footwear in the most general sense. Alright, so let's jump into this imagined world. Let's picture it as exactly the same as our current situation. Absolutely no different. Except for one alteration. Shoes are a brand new concept. That's right. I want us to pretend that we somehow managed to get to where we are in this advanced civilization without having really ever considered the potential need for or benefit of any form of footwear. We were somehow distracted enough with all of our other progress that it never really occurred to us to start offering our feet protection and support. Let's try not to focus on all the reasons why this might be unreasonable and certainly improbable in any alternate reality. It's part of the point of this exercise. Now we've come to the same present day as we are in our current reality while in this other realm. But it's only now some of humanity has started to realize that maybe we needn't be barefoot any longer. Maybe we shouldn't be barefoot any longer. And it just so happens in this alternate reality, it's some folk from the normal foot size distribution with the largest feet that realized, you know what? I'm tired of having my bare toes exposed. I'm always stubbing them and it can be pretty dangerous. It also really kind of hurts when I accidentally step on something sharp, rocky ground, or worse, a piece of Lego. I could really use some protection for my exposed feet. I bet I could even run faster with some support too. I'm sure other folks with large feet must feel the same way. Why haven't we done something about this yet? So, some entrepreneur from within this group gets to work on engineering and producing the first forms of footwear. Socks and shoes come simultaneously. It went to reason we might like something soft and cushiony to offer additional protection before we stuffed our feet into a cast and laced up. The entrepreneur shows others from their tribe of large-footed folks the new inventions and excitement grows within the group. They can't wait to experience the life-improving benefits they will have from gloving their feet in a soft fabric before slipping them into a protective casing. The entrepreneur gets their production nailed down, has their distribution all squared away, and starts getting shoes onto the feet of those that need and appreciate them most. The folks with the greatest surface area of foot touching the ground all day, every day. 
Those most abused feet have finally found relief that had never been imagined before. This group, we'll say of size 13 feet and up, are so impressed with the new concept of footwear that they start preaching to the masses they themselves should also adopt the idea of getting on board with the concept of footwear, putting something on their feet. Now, let's introduce a little more absurdity for the exercise in thought. Let's make the assertion that not only are there obviously going to be folks that are fundamentally opposed to footwear, but the group of large-footed individuals that have fundamentally accepted footwear also do not see the need in making footwear smaller than size 13. The former group is convicted in their beliefs that barefoot is the only way to go. It's how we were designed, after all. An engineered product is not needed, as our naturally derived engineering of the foot is superior and not in need of any unnatural supplementation. The latter group is under the belief that since folks with size 13 feet and above are the only people who really need footwear, Everyone else who might want it can just accept that it's a one-size-fits-all. If you want to experience the benefits of footwear, you can find a way to make yourself fit. You know, just stuff the shoe with something to fill all the extra space. Put on some more socks. Might not fit perfectly, but you can make it fit if you really need to, or if you want to. Clearly, the barefooters and the footwear wearers are inevitably completely opposed in their views in this imagined reality. All the folks in the spectrum of foot sizes and varying preferences for footwear or barefoot are obviously told they have to choose a side, even though they handedly make up the majority based on what we know about normal distributions. You know, 68% of them would be close to the middle on these concepts rather than at the poles. They're told the only options, though, are to essentially wear one-size-fits-all footwear or go barefoot. It would be egregious to sometimes wear footwear and other times go barefoot. It must be wholly one or the other. There is no conscionable justification for requiring any variety between going barefoot or wearing size 13 shoes. These folks waffle in the middle, confused by the established necessity to accept one of either polar opposite views. The barefooters and footwear wearers fight each other to assimilate folks to their cause and side in hopes of extinguishing the other. Each has come to the realization that coexisting must be impossible. They're resolute that their causes are diametrically opposed and each is unreasonable in their beliefs that the other should be feared. Yeah, I don't know that barefooters would be afraid of footwear wearers or vice versa. I can't imagine a reason for the fighting to get to that point. I am often surprised in reality though, so why not in this alternate reality? Could we imagine they would be willing to go to war? No matter which side you view the perspective from, you'll find the group convinced the other is imposing, unreasonable, and just plain old wrong, of course. Then, a tug of war is played with the middle, which happens to be the majority, in order to establish a winning and losing ideology. In this alternate reality, they don't realize that everyone can benefit from allowing for greater representation rather than fostering oppression. My hope is that we all have some similar questions at this point. Questions like, why would it not be okay for some folks to remain barefoot while others choose to accept footwear into their lives? How come we can't make more sizes of shoes to make them fit better for a greater number of people? These are reasonable questions to have. Questions that would obviously yield logical results as we've seen in our present reality, our real reality. In our reality, we have an absurd and abundant plethora of footwear. 
I couldn't even caution an estimate at how many footwear companies exist in our world, nor could I fathom the level of diversity. We have footwear that fits the tiniest little baby feet all the way up to shack size and beyond. Our footwear is categorized into a ridiculous amount of classifications. Minimalist, supportive, running, orthotic, safety, sports-specific, heels, platforms, boots, sandals, wide foot, wide toe. You get the point. The list goes on and on and on. We have so much footwear in our world that your imagination is unlikely to come up with an iteration we don't already have or haven't already tried. The diversity is virtually endless. And guess what? Some folks go barefoot and most of us are unbothered. It's not a big deal and it's not a personal affront to you. What's my point? My point is that by looking at footwear in our present relationship with it, it's absolutely ludicrous to imagine the reality I presented, where footwear wearers and barefooters battle for supremacy over the other. We, as a civilized species, have come together to understand the value in footwear, made it abundantly available and diverse, as well as accepted that a group of barefooters can be coexisted with. I propose that this is a potential metaphor and lesson for the majority of issues we as a humanity face. Issues of humanity. The issues we create from being human and interacting with other humans. Not the outside issues humanity faces, but the ones we are responsible for in our disagreements. I propose that like with footwear, if we reasonably engage with differing views and diverse perspectives, we can achieve real and true progress where we are more likely to create a future in which a greater number of us wins. Maybe you think I'm delusional. It's a ridiculous metaphor and won't work with the real problems we have in society. How could it possibly be equated, right? I just don't get it, do I? If this is how you feel, then I ask you, what's the harm in taking on this belief? If we choose to believe it's not that absurd to try and view all of our human issues in a similar light by seeing the parallels, we might actually make a positive difference. We might truly, collectively advance and start focusing on working towards the existential issues instead. I'm clearly making the argument that our current approach does not seem to be working all too well. I see greater and greater division, more attempts at silencing and louder voices shouting over others to be heard instead. If a better perspective, a more apt analogy can be found, I'm listening. I'd be happy to explore it together. For now, though, I hope you will join me in seeing our issues with each other as though they can similarly be viewed against the footwear issue in the alternate reality. I'm most certainly not equating the magnitude of anyone's current plight to my imaginative metaphor. I simply want to suggest that there could be parallels we might be willing to accept. We know that one size does not fit all. We understand there are diverse sizes, shapes, and needs. We accept that some will choose not to adopt. Why can we not see it the same in any different area? Why must we be so assimilated in such a binary fashion? Can we not discuss the multitude of options and arrive together at something more reasonable? Understanding that the vast majority of folks do not feel represented by the banality of black and white thinking, the either-or mentality, we need not seek to extinguish any side, tribe, stance, belief, ideologies, etc. We need to seek understanding, aim to reason, and work towards equitable solutions. 
Joe South wrote and sang a song called Walk a Mile in My Shoes, but I prefer the Elvis version. We should all go take a listen when we get a chance. It's quite profound if you genuinely listen to the lyrics. You'll certainly be unsurprised by the message. It can be summarized in the line, Before you abuse, criticize and accuse, walk a mile in my shoes. I think we all know this idea and we all feel this way ourselves. We are all struggling and wishing others would just take a walk in our shoes to see and feel our struggle. See the world from our painful perspective. Experience our perceived oppressions. Understand our struggles and how they affect us. Well, your shoes don't fit me and mine don't fit you. I'll never be able to take that metaphorical walk in your shoes and you'll never be able to do so in mine. I don't think I should want to fit into your shoes, nor do I think you should want to fit into mine. I think that we can discuss with each other what we've experienced in the miles covered in our own shoes to try and find mutual understanding. Neither shoe is likely to be the right shoe for each of us. We will have different shoes to walk different paths. It does not mean that we cannot travel these paths without equitable consideration. They need not be opposed. In fact, I think that if we seek to accept that multiple diverse paths of overcoming individual struggle can be accepted, those paths may one day naturally converge on the struggles that concern humanity's continued existence and propagation. I'm not a doomsdayer, but I feel I have a healthy level of concern around our current prospect of being able to continue to advance ourselves into the future. I hope you don't think it's a stretch that I believe there are multiple threats to humanity's future. I won't list my concerns out, not today anyway, but I imagine you must feel like there are at least a few yourself. Are you willing to put your shoes on, face your struggle, and help others with theirs? Are you willing to at least try to understand that their struggles should also be considered and reasoned with? Can we try to find solutions together? Are you not more worried about our existential struggles? I can almost assuredly say that their ideologies are not part of our existential issues. It's just a consequence of our human nature to see it that way. Those are issues of humanity. An innate, seemingly inability to get along is all it is. A position taken whereby it is stated that you must make the shoe fit. I want to explore a multitude of positions. I hope you'll share the interest. I'll never be able to fit into your shoes, but I want to know what it's like to walk in them from you so we can conceivably find some common ground and walk together towards a more promising future. Now, I want to pivot into the inspiration for the name of the podcast, The Eighth Juror. I'll cut to the chase and not keep you guessing. It's in reference to one of the characters from Reginald Rose's Twelve Angry Men, an iconic story I intend to explore and analyze while you hopefully stick around to indulge me. It was originally published as a play nearly three quarters of a century ago in 1954. The most well-known version of the story is a film by the same name released three years later in 1957. It starred Henry Fonda, Lee J. Cobb, and Martin Balsam. Recognize any of those names? I sure didn't. Henry Fonda maybe sounded a little familiar. My dad probably mentioned him to me before as a remarkable character he enjoyed in his youth. I certainly didn't know who he really was, though. Didn't even know what he looked like. With a quick search, I found out he passed five years before I was even born. He was 77 at the time of his death. So, more than likely, Henry's and his co-star's names are way before your time as they are mine. Released 66 years ago. 
This movie came out a few years before my parents were even born. So, as I cover this version of it, be forewarned. I will be going into detail. The type of detail one might consider as spoilers. You couldn't possibly justify considering this as me spoiling it for you, though. You've had more than enough time to discover this brilliant film or any other versions of the story before pressing play on this episode today. It's been around so long, you've likely seen or heard the same story in some version or other with different characters, a changed setting, or any other slight variations with the same premise. You've almost certainly even been exposed to its being referenced in many other great stories you've enjoyed, seeing as it's so iconic. This was the case for me. It's ingrained in my nature to get really curious about a good story and all the details of it. I constantly want to go down the rabbit hole, gather more knowledge, learn more, understand more deeply. So, while rewatching the series Suits, one of my all-time favorite shows, up until the end of season 7 anyway, 12 Angry Men was referenced in a climactic episode, a pivotal moment in the story in relation to the main character's arc and THE storyline of the show. It was referenced as one of the most significant pieces of the entire series was put into place. Again, this has been out long enough you can't blame me for spoiling. Not quite 66 years, but I'm still not going to feel bad. The main character, Mike Ross, who spent much of the show working as a lawyer, was finally caught and put on trial for conspiracy to commit fraud. Having never gone to law school or passing the bar, he was most definitely guilty. He was given a trial, however, and faced a jury of his peers. We would later find out from a juror after the trial is over, Mike was deemed not guilty. The juror would go on to say it was despite it being like 12 angry men in there, the jury room that is. This juror claims he had been the equivalent of the play's juror number eight. I didn't know then of the significance of this reference, but knew this was a rabbit hole I would need to dive down. Suit's protagonist, Mike, was vindicated and excused of his crimes committed being deemed capital G good by a random assortment of his peers. You know, good in the general sense of being a good person, despite his mistakes and indiscretions. Good in the way we all generally see ourselves. It was a pretty meaningful reference to the original play, I figured. So, I followed my curiosity and bought a paperback version of the play from the used bookstore down the road and started reading almost immediately. I purchased a digital copy of the 1957 version of the film as well. I felt I needed to know that story, get as much as I could from each version of the story. I had to understand its cultural significance and grasp its message. Whether I do spoil either 12 Angry Men or even Suits for you, I still highly recommend you watch or rewatch them yourself. In fact, I'll state it so it's known from this first episode. I'm likely to reference many stories in the future should this podcast have any longevity. There could be many more spoilers, but it will be in an effort to inspire you to see the meaning I've sought in the stories I've enjoyed or felt drawn to. I would love nothing more than for you to still take in firsthand any reference I make. I assure you, there is always much more to every story for you to explore. Anyway, I was not disappointed during my first pass of the film. This is obviously the format of the story I'm choosing to deep dive. For this first viewing, I threw it on and watched it all the way through. I took it in as it was designed to be, not yet taking the time to overanalyze, just following the story as it unfolded in real time. I would just watch and listen closely and allow myself to feel. It didn't take long for the premise to be established and for me to feel as though it was going to be deep. By the end of the film, I would dare say 
It was perfect. You'll understand why soon enough. A couple weeks later, while preparing for this podcast, I put it on again. This time, I watched more intently, analyzed and studied. I would pause to take notes, rewind to hear again what was said, rewind further to confirm what I had seen. I thoroughly enjoyed the experience of dissecting the piece. The whole film took place in one small room with 12 actors around a table, and it was a masterpiece. The acting was spectacular. The story was magnificent. Let's get to breaking it down then. Analyzing the details to understand why I was so inspired by the moral of the story. The film opens by panning from the outside steps of a court building to the top of its columns where the words, Administration of justice is the firmest pillar of good, are engraved. Administration of justice, which is being just, impartial, or fair, is the firmest pillar of good. Think about the definition of justice for a moment. Being just, impartial, or fair. All too frequently, I believe justice is taken to mean punitive and even vengeful. Administering justice is not intended to be contained to passing judgment and issuing punishment as we might see it in our mind's eye. Justice is being in conformity with what is morally upright or good treating or affecting all equally and free from self-interest, prejudice, or favoritism. Thanks, Merriam-Webster. This should be what comes to mind when justice is demanded, not purely retribution. I digress. The highlighting of this court of law's motto was a profound way to set the tone in my opinion. It's a powerful statement, especially if it can be taken as instructive. I took this statement as the title of the lesson I was about to receive. It was the premise, clearly stated. The first scene is in courtroom 228, where the judge is giving his closing statements. He sounds bored, rehearsed, and uncaring. He's giving the jury their instruction to vote on a verdict in a murder case, where the vote must be unanimous. He continues on to say, there's any reasonable doubt the verdict must be not guilty. If a guilty verdict is returned, the death penalty will be mandatory per the rule of law. Now, reasonable doubt essentially means not all doubt could be eliminated. Some doubt would remain. If any doubt exists as to the guilt of the defendant, the judge clearly states a unanimous, not guilty vote must be rendered. Equally so, this also means by contrast that arriving at guilty must equal no doubt. It's unequivocal. The death penalty will be enforced if the jury returns a guilty verdict because there is no doubt of the guilt. When you think about it that way, you might wonder, how could you ever be that sure? To have absolutely no doubt. In this particular case especially, to the point you'd be willing to have a life taken. That's how I felt when I thought deeply on the burden this jury would face. That's how I feel in general, actually. It's actually a main reason for this podcast, to explore the doubt. When the consequences are at their highest, how are we able to so cavalierly feel so resolute in our beliefs and opinions? How are we so convinced that our facts leave no room for any doubt to the point we're willing to cast a sentence? This is all explored in what's to follow. The 12 jurors shuffle into a stuffy little jury room with nothing but a table, chairs, a water cooler, and a fan that won't turn on. It's quickly established how hot that little room is when all the characters are fanning themselves, dabbing their brow, and sweating through their shirts from the get. 
We soon find out it's the hottest day of the year, and of course, nobody's in a good mood. It is called 12 Angry Men, after all. The first time we meet our protagonist, he's just staring out the window. You can see in his distant and unfocused gaze, he is pensive. He's thinking, weighing, wondering. The other 11, they're buzzing around the room, distracted and preoccupied. It's clear only juror number 8 is considering the weight of the decision at hand. It becomes even more obvious with the first joke crack coming from juror 10. Everyone but juror 8 chuckles at the flippant joke as the talks immediately pivot to getting the whole thing over with already. Juror 3 says to another, The case is open and shut. He almost fell asleep during the trial. It was so obvious and boring, apparently. It's abundantly clear he was predecided on his judgment before the trial even began. Stereotyping prejudice make up his basis for decision-making in this matter. Juror 8, he continues to gaze out the window while evaluating, shrugging off the chit-chat of the other jurors before the foreman decides to kick things off and has to bring them back to the moment. Everyone gets settled at the table in order of their juror number, and before any conversation about the details of the trial, they get right to voting. We haven't seen or heard any consideration yet by anyone other than juror 8 with any regard for the magnitude of the decision they are about to make. It should come as no surprise to you. All other 11 jurors vote guilty, while juror 8 votes not. As he raised his hand for a not guilty vote, You could see it played out perfectly on Henry Fonda's face that he knew he was in for it. He was willing to stand alone, understanding the likely consequences he would face, because he was bound by his principles to do so. When he is asked in a derogatory manner if he really thinks the accused is actually innocent, Juror 8's response was a simple, I don't know. Brilliant. He's not saying, yes, I think he's innocent. He just knows he's unable to honestly say, I'm sure he is guilty. There is doubt, reasonable doubt. Whether the other 11 are willing to recognize it or not, Juror 8 cannot overlook it. Even though everyone else is ready to pass judgment and just get on with their life, after deciding to end another's, let's remember, Juror 8 asks for at least one hour to talk it through a little. He's trying to compromise and is really just seeking to listen. All he wants is to be as sure as everyone else is so he can feel as though he made a good and moral decision in doling out the justice the others have called for. Everyone considers it a not unreasonable request and accept. Juror 10, however, immediately tries to jump in with an irrelevant story rather than using the time to discuss the case, trying to derail before any actual deliberations can start with no concern for the magnitude of the situation. Juror 8 reels the conversation in quickly, though, and starts thinking through the details out loud. He starts talking of considering some of the circumstances and adding context to some of the presented facts of the case. He's trying to engage everyone on further analysis when Juror 10 interrupts again. Here's where it's revealed just how problematic he's going to be as he starts spewing racist stereotypes denoting inherent guilt in the defendant. It's inborn. He doesn't get too bold during this first instance of spouting off bigotry before being told by Juror 9, who happens to be an immigrant, that he's ignorant. Juror 10 pipes down for now, and the jurors agree to take turns convincing Juror 8 of the defendant's guilt. Now's when I would say things really take off. We start to learn more about each juror and the reasoning for their vote. There's a lot of diversity in the room. Certainly not sufficient by today's standards, but for 66 years ago, I'd say it was pretty representative. 
We had a high school football coach, a meek bank worker, a brash, bigoted business owner, a broker bound by logic, a night nurse from the slums, a blue collar house painter, a slick salesman, a wise old man, a fierce racist, a well educated immigrant, an indecisive ad man, and of course, our juror eight. Juror number eight, who is a representation of a good and noble man of the middle class. Upper middle, I would say, since he works as an architect. Maybe a little bit away from the median of the normal distribution, but still within the portion under the curve representing the average citizen. The jury is designed to be a representative microcosm of society, with all the diversity in that room that comes with a diverse set of opinions as a result of varied experiences and beliefs. We're meant to see the story unfold in this small room as a lesson in how to be just and civilized in our own society. It's not just an entertaining story. It's an important lesson. Juror number eight has already instigated the shift in direction from the path all other jurors were willing to go down. A path we often take ourselves in just following the herd. Like a stone tossed into a still pond, the ripples slowly expand from the simple question asked by juror eight. How can you be so sure? The convincing beginning with juror two and going in order thereafter is wholly unconvincing to any reasonable mind. We get an, I just think he's guilty. A listing of quote unquote facts, none of which have yet been contended with. An assertion that the defendant's story is flimsy. And then another self-righteous interruption by juror 10, again. So angry it's not obvious to everyone else, he lists off even more facts with overtones of racism and based solely on unfair stereotyping. Our protagonist is quick to poke holes in virtually every point made by Juror 10 and challenges those statements of prejudice. Juror 8 is firm and respectful in wrestling away the control of the conversation to bring it back to logic and reason. He will not stand idly by and silent as an obnoxious, loud, and angry voice of absurdity aims to persuade all others to his hatred and disdain. Juror 10 quiets again, for now, and the dialogue returns to detailing the reasoning for guilty votes. The next set of reasons include motive being apparently sufficient to infer causation, the defendant's previous record to assume guilt as if ingrained, and then a few non-answers, no reasoning to be provided, just ready to vote guilty without any thought whatsoever. Juror 8 points out that no reason yet provided has been able to remove all reasonable doubt. He's unconvinced and unyielding in being unwilling to change his vote. The anger ramps up a notch in the sauna that is the jury room as everyone gangs up on Juror 8 to pressure for a surrender and a guilty vote with the rest of them. Being bound to his morals, he's not able to obviously, but he does make a proposition. He wants to see if his ripples of doubt have yet reached any other juror. He proposes all other 11 jurors take a blind vote, and if they all still agree on guilty, he'll change his own vote and end the deliberations. A bold gamble for a man who is resolute in his belief of reasonable doubt continuing to exist, with a life on the line. After nine straight votes of guilty, are read out by the foreman and sufficient tension has been built, we get a not guilty. The last guilty is read out next and we find relief alongside juror number eight that there was at least one other person in the room who is willing to accept guilt is not certain and more reasoning is required. Juror three takes his turn with an outburst following the vote that didn't go his way. 
He points his anger towards the night nurse from the slums, berating and accusing of being one of them, showing undue sympathy to one of his own. Even though the vote was supposed to be secret, the old man pipes up to admit his was the not guilty, to end the unjust chastising of Juror 5. Juror 9, the old man, admired Juror 8's courage to stand up to ridicule, judgment, and character attacks when so greatly outnumbered. He saw nobility in the willingness to pursue what is right despite the ensuing heated disagreement. He was now ready to stand beside Juror 8. The result? The tension boils over and a much-needed break is called to cool the emotions that are running high and hot. During the break, we follow Juror 8 into the washroom where he'll splash some water in his face to cool off a bit and catch a breath in peace. Despite all of the tension, he's still not lost his temper in the room to meet those tempers aimed at him, but his frustration was just barely kept in check. He composes himself and readies for what's to come next as he dries off. The sleazy salesman, Juror 7, takes the opportunity in this moment to tell Juror 8 he's pretty good at the soft sell. He says it almost derogatorily, implying a sense of, I see what you're doing here, and I don't like it. I felt this must be significant, and I didn't yet know the soft sell was the act of persuading with subtlety until I completed a quick Google search. Try to remember this a little later in the episode as the way in which Juror 8 was able to start warming others to his stance on the matter. He motivated the change of one vote so far. He's done so without having made any assertions. He's not proclaiming himself an expert or an authority. He's not confrontational. Juror 8 is just asking questions in pursuit of knowing. For sure. How can you know? It's all he's essentially asking. With the most severe consequence, taking a life away. As the possible result, Juror 8 is convicted to needing to know before making a condemning decision. He can't comprehend how the other jurors could not see how significant a decision this was to be how severe the consequences are from deciding there is no doubt. So much doubt still exists. A new conversation sparked with Juror 6 and continued a bit while still in the washroom. The question being asked of Juror 8 whether he actually thinks the kid is not guilty. On committal, the response given is, it's possible. Followed by Juror 8 asking Juror 6 to suppose. Suppose he was the one on trial. Wouldn't he want it to be fair and just? Juror 6 says he's not into supposing. Not into supposing he could be in the other position, walking in those shoes. We do it every day, don't we? Not see ourselves and others? Not understand the roles could so easily be reversed? Not see we could be in the same position and would want some grace extended if it were the case? Without much consideration, we take on the position of Juror 6, being unwilling to suppose. We want to be given grace, but are not inclined to return any in kind. We write off opinions, beliefs, and people in general. We take the life out of voices, movements, and even beings by being unwavering and unrelenting in our beliefs and opinions. We do all of this with an expectation it would never happen to us because we are good. Should not ever happen to us because we are righteous. Could not happen to us because we are protected. We do it with no regard for the other side because we don't want to suppose. We don't want to see ourselves in their position, in their shoes. We don't see ourselves in others and the result is a lack of empathy. Well, I propose we suppose, just as does Juror 8 in 12 Angry Men. Now, before leaving the bathroom, Juror 6 asked Juror 8 to suppose if he were wrong about the kid. 
What if he is guilty, and because of Juror 8, he goes free? You see it worn well on the face of Henry Fonda. This proposition weighs heavy on his character for a moment. It's certainly a risk, and he knows it. One he's still willing to take, however. He is resolute in his belief it is the right thing to do. The risk the other way is far too costly if gotten wrong. What if, though? What if he was getting it wrong and the kid was guilty? Guilty, but would go free because of Juror 8's position and persistence in his efforts of uniting the jury. It would be tough to contend with, to be sure, but required nonetheless for the greater good. Plus, there's always still sufficient opportunity for Juror 8's mind to be convinced by the other jurors to avoid the possibility altogether. They just must dig deeper and provide more substantial reasoning. It's what he was asking for to begin with, to be persuaded by sound reasoning. Juror 8 is not immovable, just deeply rooted in requiring conclusive evidence, especially for such grand results. Back in the jury room, and feeling a little emboldened by his little bit of success in changing one vote so far, Juror 8 starts listing his justifications for the position he is holding. He reasons, applies logic, and introduces doubts surrounding the details being accepted as facts. He verifies the details shake out and make sense, rather than accepting them at face value. He challenges the narrative and makes sure the gaps get filled in to create a clearer picture on the particulars of the crime. Other jurors begin to follow the lead and engage more deeply in the conversation. They recognize the value in being more curious and less sure. Maybe they don't quite yet realize the magnitude of the situation like Juror 8 does, the life on the line but at least they recognize the truth they are seeking in that room is not quite as obvious as they once presumed. It's a beautiful process unfolding on the screen. Juror 8, despite the initial ridicule, is winning over the other jurors. Those jurors finding their voice and arriving at a paramount revelation encapsulated in the line, I don't believe I have to be loyal to one side or the other. I'm simply asking questions. That about sums it up perfectly, right there. The realization that more questions need to be asked to be able to arrive at a certainty and accepted truth, because unquestioning loyalty to a side inevitably leads to unjustness, unfairness. Ever hear the quote, absolute power corrupts absolutely? The more you ask questions, the more you understand, the more accepting you become, and the less you fear. Like the jury, however, we will have parallels and likeness to some of them remaining unconvinced and standing firm. Those jurors getting increasingly angered as their ground is lost and becoming more combative as a result. Juror 8 does not allow the situation to devolve to violence and allows the flawed logic and reasoning of the guilty voters to be exposed for all to see. Those jurors who clearly remain on the wrong side for the wrong reasons are not silenced, but rather Give an opportunity to put their ignorance on full display. Counterintuitively, not silencing, actually improves the situation. The statements made are so clearly wrong, they influence some jurors over to the not guilty side. This makes me think of a relevant quote. Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt. This quote, attributed to Abe Lincoln, is not just a warning to personally take in. It's also a lesson in how to outwardly act. Let the fools speak, rather than attempt to silence them, if they are willing. In doing so, they will remove all doubt of their foolishness. In fact, an example of the very lesson is pretty much exactly what happens next in the story. 
After substantial deliberating, we get down to the last two holdouts of a guilty vote. These men will not budge. They're irate now and feeling attacked, ready to lash out. Jurors 3 and 10 are the last and their anger is extreme. Juror 10, the racist, and then Juror 3. It's clear he's a bigot, but we've not yet quite pinpointed his issue. There's something different between him and 10. Juror 10 is plainly ignorant and has held prejudices, a supremacist. 3, though, seems to be projecting rather than holding his beliefs at a base level. And here's where, when almost all others have abandoned the position, Juror 10 finally boils over and cannot contain himself from spewing off a racist tirade. It so plainly exposes his bigotry, prejudice, and chauvinism. It's disgusting. The other jurors handle it, as well as portray the exposure to vileness perfectly. They do not engage. They get up, walk away from the table, and turn their backs on Juror 10. They show him he will not be listened to, no matter the ferocity or intensity of his hateful preaching. They demonstrate to him how problematic his position is by ignoring him and allowing for the realization of being alone in his hatred, allowing him to have a voice but not paying it any attention, making him realize his voice is lost in the void and leading him to being ostracized for his terribly problematic convictions, so much more powerful than shutting him up. An individual who is kept from speaking will feel even more entitled to their opinion. It's natural and unavoidable. They are left to believe it's valid because we have not allowed it to be proven out to them. In their mind, it will forever remain truth if it is not allowed to be tested. It's only platforming if we listen. We don't have to listen. We can allow a more democratic approach, not silencing, but demonstrating the opinion, belief, truth as invalid or problematic by not paying any mind to the fool. Once Juror 10 realized he had no audience to entertain and engage his bigotry, he shriveled. It was the perfect time for one of the jurors to warn 10. He should sit down and not open his mouth again. Juror 10 takes his seat in the corner, facing it with a thousand yard stare as he feels the shock of shame and embarrassment overwhelm him. He spirals into a cycle of contemplation, self-evaluating and being devastated by the assessment. He's realizing the error of his ways and seemingly beginning an existential crisis. Before the situation can go in any more negative a direction with the jury reeling from the tirade, Juror 8 addresses the group to steady it. He does so with such a great line. I'll quote it here. It's always difficult to keep personal prejudice out of a thing like this, wherever you run into it. Prejudice always obscures the truth. I don't really know what the truth is. I don't suppose anybody will ever really know, but we have a reasonable doubt, and that's something very valuable in our system. He doesn't excuse the prejudice, he recognizes it exists, and has understanding of what it is. He doesn't accept it. Juror 8 works to overcome it and move beyond it. He points out that it's difficult to ever know the truth, but allowing for reasonable doubt is extremely valuable to the system, a metaphor for society in this story. The lesson is, rather than succumbing to any prejudice, which essentially all unproven truths are, be curious and seek to more deeply understand. Inspired by recognizing there is reasonable doubt yet to be eliminated, despite it taking a complete breakdown for Juror 10, his vote is finally flipped. The last guilty vote is being held by Juror 3. He's utterly convinced everyone else is misguided. He doesn't know what's wrong with everyone else in the room. 
Without giving any specifics whatsoever, he dictates to the group everything is the justification for his position. But everything is nothing. Everything needs to be detailed, and it isn't. It's a hasty generalization fallacy on display. Juror 3 is making a claim with too insufficient of evidence, but appealing to it being sufficient. Pressed and pressured on his shaky position atop a sinking foundation of fallacy, Juror 3 finally cracks during his last gasp effort to convince the other 11. He has a breakdown, revealing his own personal pain that he was projecting and looking to place. He finally realizes the accused is not a rightful target for his anger. It is to be faced by he alone, rather than directed outwardly. Finally, all jurors vote not guilty, and the painstaking deliberations can come to an end. Immediately following the vote, everyone is quick to vacate the room, but for Juror 3 and 8. Juror 3 is still slung over the table, defeated. He's clearly at his lowest point and feeling completely lost. Juror 8 could have just got up and left with all the others. He could have even gloated or belittled his adversary from just moments ago. He chose, however, to be gracious instead. He walks to the coat rack, grabs Three's jacket, puts an arm on his shoulder in consolation, then proceeds to help put the jacket on. No malice, no arrogance. All that had mattered to Juror 8 was the pursuit of the right outcome. Difficult as it was, it was accomplished, and done so with nobility, grace, honor, and integrity. If you haven't seen the film, I recommend you still do, even after all those spoilers. There's much more to happen and absorb than I summarized, I assure you. Perhaps you'll enjoy it even more now that I might have motivated you to watch it with a discerning eye. Perhaps you'll more closely seek the meaning and study all the lessons. Either way, whether you watch it or not, I hope you can see why I find the story so profoundly inspiring. When I look out at the world, I see so many situations and circumstances with parallels to this story. An overwhelming majority of folks are certain of their truths, not recognizing the reasonable doubt which exists and ready to condemn with their convictions as the basis, often leading to high levels of anger. Can you think of a few situations that sound like this? How could you not, right? It's seemingly everywhere and for everything today. So I want to embrace and live the Juror 8 philosophy. I want to be an embodiment of Juror 8 within this podcast platform and out in the world. I wish to inspire others to embrace a Juror 8 approach within themselves. 12 Angry Men doesn't have to just be a feel-good dramatic story. It can and should be a lesson and a call to action. Because I have reasonable doubt, I continue to aim to remove it by staying curious and inquisitive. I'm not easily convinced and believe no one should be. There's always more context to gather and the solutions should evolve as a result. So should too the positions taken. Don't believe you must be loyal to one side or the other. Just ask questions. Let's not just assume, assert, and commit. Let's examine and learn together. Become an eighth juror with me, please. All right, time for one of my favorite quotes. The list is extensive, I assure you. I have a tremendous affinity for profound messages and the power that words can hold when strung together eloquently. I'm sure we'll cover a great many more of my favorites if this podcast becomes what I hope it might. But for today, we'll stick with just one favorite. One that is on point with one of the concepts of this podcast. It's a quote that I've tried to live by since I first read it over a decade ago. I came across it in the pages of The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. I probably couldn't tell you anything else from the book. I have virtually no other memory of any other of its content. 
All I might be able to do is potentially surmise the intended message, which we all could likely easily do from the title. This particular quote, though, encountered around 15 years ago, has stuck and resonated with me for all these years. I still find myself regularly meditating on it, trying to put it into action, pushing myself to live by it. Here it is. A person's success in life can usually be measured by the number of uncomfortable conversations he or she is willing to have. Maybe this isn't as profound as you were expecting. If that's the case, it's all good. Just because you don't see the significance in it that I do doesn't mean you could not understand my perspective on it. So, I'd like to dissect it. Explore what it means to me after all these years of wrestling with it. Then, how it has evolved for me and expanded in its depth. At first, when I came across it as I embarked on my career path looking to get ahead, I interpreted it quite literally in the manner of meaning we would most likely agree on. Coming out of a book about becoming new rich, while slashing the amount of work you do so you can enjoy life to its fullest, we think of the quote in the context of business, career, self-help. Unsurprisingly, the book is categorized as business motivation and self-improvement on Amazon. What I'm getting at is, when I first came across this quote, as an ambitious young man dreaming of becoming wildly successful, I embraced the literal message. By piecing the definitions of each word together, I accepted the obvious premise. If I wanted to be highly successful in my life by way of professional accomplishment, I needed to be willing to have many uncomfortable conversations. I would need to be honest when a white lie, half-truth, or full-blown lie would be easier. I would have to overcome fear and anxiety to speak even when intimidated. I would need to set emotion aside and wrestle with logic and reason instead. I would have to be willing to contend with shame and embarrassment when my ego was under attack. I would need to remain humble and honestly assess differing perspectives rather than prejudicing. I would have to act in good faith, giving respect, even when asked to compromise my morals. I would need to be strong enough to stick to those morals to remain true to myself. I would have to be willing to disappoint others despite wishing to please everyone. I would need to be willing to be hurt so someone else might avoid pain or perhaps heal. This all seemed like such a monumental demand to me, very difficult tests of character in order to become successful. Difficult conversations are, well, difficult. Not only are they difficult, the emotional burden of them often manifests into physical discomfort and pain. You can feel the agony while anticipating or having an uncomfortable conversation. It's physically tangible and our nature often screams, run, avoid. It comes as fear, disguised as a headache, a stomach in knots, or maybe even chest pain. Your subconscious is readying for a perceived potential imminent trauma. Your autonomic system engages the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. The quote essentially recommends you choose to fight. Not in the literal sense, obviously. Having the difficult conversation is to fight by putting forth a determined effort rather than avoid, freeze, or over-agree. I was inspired by what this quote was asking of me if I answered yes to wanting success of significant measure. It seemed to me to be such a noble pursuit and a simple principle to follow. Not easy, most certainly exceptionally hard, but a simple notion to press on into and through the storm when you'd rather run in the opposite direction instead. To me, I interpreted the quote as saying, achieve success by calmly remaining in the difficult conversations. Do so while striving to be good, speaking from a position of integrity and truthful in those discussions. 
Of course, you can interpret more neutrally or even negatively depending on your definition of success. I put my good and truthful spin on it because of my personal definition of success though. I cannot align myself to believing a favorable or desirable outcome would result from evil and lies. Check Merriam-Webster for that definition of success. In my mind, success would only be achieved through good intent, otherwise any perceived achievements would be hollow. It is logically not success if the gains are ill-gotten. Armed then with my definition of success and aligned on pursuing it with the willingness to engage in uncomfortable conversations, I set forth with conviction. I would not run from the unpleasant conversations. Conversations that would provide opportunity to overcome if only they were had. Opportunity to overcome challenges, obstacles, issues, misunderstandings, misconceptions, deceits, etc. Those opportunities do not occur for those who choose, flight, freeze, or fawn though. I would fight. I would fail, to be sure. I would inevitably lack courage and avoid necessary conversations. I would allow intimidation to keep me silent at times. I would permit my frustration to rise too nearly to anger. I would get defensive and volley attacks in return. I was not perfect at having uncomfortable conversations. Far from it. I was, however, almost always willing to fail forward. For every failure, I would assess, learn, and re-engage. I improved. I'm continuing to improve. There's still plenty of room for improvement. But as I did then, I continue to pursue it. I actively push myself to have more uncomfortable conversations of greater significance. I grow with each. I think that's a perfect segue to how I view the quote today after over a decade's worth of time spent with it, living it, and pursuing it. I see a different message in it now, one which has expanded from the literal version of it. I see it more as a concept grown from the seed planted of that original idea. Perhaps the best way to summarize how I choose to embrace the concept today is to change a few words of the quote. I hope Mr. Ferris won't mind the liberties I'm taking with his message. I hope he might even embrace this adaptation if he were to ever encounter it. If I were to offer the blossoming concept as an adapted quote, I would propose, A civilization's success in advancing life can usually be measured by the number of uncomfortable conversations its people are willing to have. I think that everything I said about my personal experiences and interpretations above with the original quote ring true at a much grander level, the level of the whole of society, all of humanity. We need to be willing to have the uncomfortable conversations if we are to be successful. It's at this point I am hoping you share my definition of success and desire achieving it by being a good actor and good-natured. Good actor not in the sense of playing a role well, we should not be pretending but is in the opposite of a bad actor, an entity who purposely and usually repeatedly engages in very bad behavior. I hope you also see the value in having the hard talks in pursuit of success. We should spread truth when white lies, half-truths, and lies are easier. We could overcome fear and anxiety to speak in hopes of being heard even when intimidated. We should set emotion aside and grapple with logic and reason. We could stoically face shame and embarrassment when our ego is under attack, then aim to better ourselves further. We should remain humble and respectfully assess differing perspectives without prejudice. We could act in good faith and in an honest manner, rather than allowing ourselves to compromise our ethics. We should understand there will still be disappointments, but be willing to provide reasonable explanations. 
We could be willing to accept some discomfort to provide some comfort where less is had. Then we might achieve success together. We very well could shore up our chances to further the advancement of life in the face of all the threats to it. Thank you, Tim, for this quote that continues to inspire me today. It's where I see the greatest possibility for success, having the uncomfortable conversations. Keyword here is conversation. I've referenced a few definitions so far, but this time I'm going to explicitly read out the definition because I think it's important to expand on it afterwards. According to Merriam-Webster, a conversation is an oral exchange of sentiments, observations, opinions, or ideas. An exchange. Not an argument broiling with anger. Not a pronouncement or lecture. Not silencing or shouting over. Not a dictate. We've lost touch with conversation. It's an art form on a rapid decline. Because we fail to converse, we resort to attempts at imposition, and nobody wants to be imposed upon, treaded on. It only furthers the motivation to attack back and redouble efforts to impose in the opposite direction. It's a zero-sum game at that point. There must be a loser so that there may be a winner. Let's try playing a different game instead. One where we return to having conversations that could yield greater understanding and agreement. We could work towards rooting out fear by pursuing knowledge instead. We do not fear that which we understand. If we sought to understand each other, then we would not fear each other. We might see there actually is no other, no them to our us. There is just us, all of us. An us that doesn't yet understand each of us. The beautiful thing about understanding is that it's contagious, but understanding cannot be implanted, incepted, or forced on. It must be accepted through free will by a consenting recipient. It must come organically, filtered through good reasoning and sound logic. It must be offered with patience and understanding provided in return. I'm willing to extend my hand, lend an ear, and provide a voice in these uncomfortable conversations. I want to work towards seeing eye to eye. I hope you will be motivated to do the same. I hope I can demonstrate it is possible and a noble pursuit for you to aspire to. I hope to selfishly appease my own voracious appetite too, though. An insatiable, unbounded curiosity for furthering my own understanding. I'm willing to take you for the ride if you want to join. I really want you to join. Please come along. I would consider it a grand success if it will interest you even half as much as it does I. It's my passion to lead the problem-solving efforts through conversation leading to effective action. How I've seen it most fitting to be engaged in my passion can be decently summarized through a well-known fable. While writing this episode, I wasn't sure if I could read the fable for fear of infringing on any copyrights. It is public domain thanks to the American Library of Congress. According to my quick searches online, public domain material can apparently be permissibly shared. Hopefully my understanding here is accurate and founded because I'm about to read it for you. It's not long and its lesson is quite profound by way of a simple metaphor. The fable I plan to read is one of old Aesop's. The North Wind and the Sun. It goes as follows. The North Wind and the Sun had a quarrel about which of them was the stronger. While they were disputing with much heat and bluster, a traveler passed along the road wrapped in a cloak. Let us agree, said the Sun, that he is the stronger who can strip that traveler of his cloak. Very well, growled the north wind, and at once sent a cold, howling blast against the traveler. With the first gust of wind, the ends of the cloak whipped about the traveler's body. 
but he immediately wrapped it closely around him, and the harder the wind blew, the tighter he held it to him. The north wind tore angrily at the cloak, but all his efforts were in vain. Then the sun began to shine. At first, his beams were gentle, and in the pleasant warmth after the bitter cold of the north wind, the traveler unfastened his cloak and let it hang loosely from his shoulders. The sun's rays grew warmer and warmer. The man took off his cap and mopped his brow. At last, he became so heated that he pulled off his cloak and, to escape the blazing sunshine, threw himself down in the welcome shade of a tree by the roadside. How did Aesop choose to summarize the moral of the story? Gentleness and kind persuasion win where force and bluster fail. I love it. So eloquent. Another summary I loved came from the same show I mentioned earlier, and one of my favorites, Suits. In season six's fantastic finale, Jessica Pearson, played by Gina Torres, summarizes the fable. It basically says that if you want to get a man to take off his coat, you don't blow it off. You make him feel warm and he'll take it off on his own. In the context of this episode, Gina's character was saying, it's not about strong arming, but reminding about compassion in order to have someone come around. Simple concept, obvious choice, you would think. Either force and be rejected or kindly persuade and be welcomed. Here's where it gets sticky though. Why would you extend yourself gently when you're always faced with forcefulness, right? Fight fire with fire? It's the only way, isn't it? Return force and become more forceful in order to overcome? Go to war. It's how it's done. How it's always been done. Well, to receive compassion, compassion must be given. It's so reasonable and obvious as a premise to me that it cannot possibly be refuted in my mind. I've seen and studied many examples of what force and bluster result in. The fruit it yields is rotten to the core. Nothing fruitful can grow from bitter cold and unrelenting force. With gentle warmth, though, something beautiful might be cultivated instead. In a way, I'd like to be the equivalent of the sun in this fable. Gentle, kind, and warm. But actually, more accurately, I would rather be the traveling man if not constantly thrashed by the north wind. I'm not receptive to force and bluster. They will not persuade me. I'm willing to be persuaded, but only if done compassionately. I'm wanting to provide, via this podcast, an example of the warmer path. I will attempt to demonstrate force can be faced without needing to be returned. With patient, determined resolve, aim to keep the conversations going even when faced with bluster, not rise to anger or force. With everything that I hope to accomplish through this podcast, I want to acknowledge a few things up front. In an effort to find understanding, risks must be taken. Knowledge only comes from testing and pushing boundaries. Like virtually any other pursuit, success only comes from overcoming. To have found a way to go beyond the obstacle, often with seemingly endless failures first preceding the triumph. In the vein of pursuing knowledge and understanding, what is to be overcome is unknowing, unawareness. I want to recognize here and now that with the territory this journey will pass over, there will be failures. In order to be willing to learn, there must be humility and a recognition of ignorance. Although ignorance has a negative connotation, it's actually quite neutral in its definition. It does not necessarily signify idiocy or stupidity as it might often be defined when used to tear someone down. Ignorance is actually only the lack of knowledge, education, or awareness. If anything, by that definition, how could it not be accepted ignorance is abundantly possessed by all? It's just a fact. No one is omnipotent. We all lack knowledge, education, or awareness, despite all of our efforts. It's innately human. 
recognizing this truth and by the definition, there is no end to ignorance. It is infinite. There will always exist a lack of knowledge, education, or awareness. There will always exist more room to reduce the lack. Every reduction in ignorance results in realizing additional ignorance if there is sufficient humility. For that reason, I am proud to say I humbly recognize I am ignorant. And that's the reason for this podcast. In recognizing it exists, I cannot personally accept my own ignorance. Knowing I'll never be able to fully overcome it, I will valiantly still try. And in understanding it is an impossibility, I recognize it would be arrogant to ever arrive at believing myself to be an authority. With this personal view, I want to expand my knowledge, education, and awareness to their limit. I want to reduce my ignorance as much as possible. To do so, I must be willing to take risks. I risk humiliation, judgment, criticism. But most unfortunate, I risk hurting others. I'm willing to risk the first three and hope leniency can be provided on the fourth. I can almost assuredly say it will be unintentional and not purposefully malicious. I would like for it to be known up front, I am aware my ignorance might anger some, insult others, and potentially harm a few as well. I will apologize in advance if any of this should occur. I will be sure to remain willing to apologize again in the future if warrantably called for. Please know, any instance of which any of those three unfortunate circumstances occur, it did so as a result of ignorance being attempted to be overcome. Please remember the whole intent here is to overcome ignorance, which will result in bumping up against some lines and accidentally crossing others along the way. It is what needs to occur to arrive at knowledge and understanding. We should intend to learn together what is too far and then reel it back in. And we all must be willing to reel a little. So if I should cross a line, know it is only in an effort to learn, to find where that line is, where it should stay, and why it should not be crossed. You might be willing to draw parallels from common occurrences in your own life to see how this pursuit is not so different in nature. Thinking of the ways in which you failed forward, stumbled, faced painful negative feedback, took stock, and then retried with the gained insights and experience as a new advantage. Perhaps in your weight loss attempts, rebounding as consistency cannot be maintained for each new regimen attempted until self-love is found while engaging in the sustainable routines you enjoy. Maybe on your career path, jumping between companies, roles, and even industries until you've secured the ideal position where your being feels aligned with your work. It could even be battling an addiction, overcoming trauma, or any form of spiritual healing. Common Human Trials Although many common trials are not the same in magnitude to the topics needing conversation, not by any stretch of the imagination, these are all similar in concept to what is to happen here. Failing forward in order to improve and achieve success. The misunderstandings, misconceptions, and errors will be addressed along the way. It will be a marathon, however, not a sprint. Understanding does not just happen. It is a process. It takes time, patience, discipline, and effort. This is why I ask for some leniency, but not just for me, not just in this platform. Yes, I'm technically asking you directly in relation to those right now, but really, I'm asking for it to be your general position. Do not judge too swiftly as opinions, stances, and perspectives can change. But change will not come by force through berating or from ousting. If we judge too quickly and provide no opportunity for a learning to occur, 
then ignorance only prevails, persists, and grows. To fight ignorance, we need to be willing to engage, not silence or be silent. I do not want to be scared of making attempts at understanding for fear of being removed from the conversation. I do not want that for any of us. Ideally, we would all feel free to pursue furthering our understanding, so long as it is done in good nature. A perfect outcome would be a return to innocent childlike curiosity en masse, just continuing to ask why until satisfied with the answer through understanding, reducing the fear of consequence from bumping into the lines in order to fail forward. Rather than being scared to press on, being willing to go forward from knowing of the benefit on the other side of the discomfort, pushing the envelope until there can be satisfaction with the answer to the question, why? I'll tell you right now, I won't be satisfied with the answer because. I wish the same for you, to not accept because. Explain it to me like I'm a child. If you're unable to do so, I propose you may not understand quite as well as you might think. I won't fault you for this recognition though. I'll respect it. Appreciate your humility. Being willing to pursue greater understanding together. Once we know why, the resulting solution will seem so obvious. To me, I see knowledge like a math equation. Where it can seem impossible to solve does not mean a solution does not exist. If all the known information is added to all the required context, then it would equal sound logic and good reasoning. Solutions resulting from the equation, which could be turned into knowledge. There is always seemingly more information and context to be added to the equation, however. This makes the solution ever-evolving as more is added in all the time. It compounds. It's like a high-interest savings account where we reinvest the newly acquired knowledge to then increase it further. If we want to continue the cycle of increasing our knowledge, we will want to ensure we keep the conversation going to gather more information and context. To have the equations continually evolve to reveal ever more clear solutions in an effort to eliminate ignorance. And we must always recognize ignorance persists. So, This segment of the podcast is a long-winded and also repetitive way of asking you to stick with me on this path. We should hope that it gets bumpy, winding, and even treacherous. We want to treat conversation like a science experiment. Ask a question, learn, hypothesize, test, analyze, and draw a conclusion. Then, do it all over again with a more fine-tuned question. Prove out our concepts by submitting them to ever-increasing scrutiny. By being a lead experimenter, I'm highly likely to encounter boilovers, explosions, breaks, and any other metaphor on theme with grade school science experiments that you want to toss in. I plan to calmly take note of the results, make adjustments, and try again, undeterred. Allow for the adjustments, please. Help me with them. And if you choose to do so, remember, it will be better received if coming from a position of kindness. Think of it in the context of being similar to parenting. It's okay to be disappointed in the situation, but teaching with a gentle touch is far superior to anger, punishment, or disgrace. The former yields positive development, where the latter fosters resentment, withdrawal, and fear. However this education comes, I will be grateful for it, and choose to see the good in each of the lessons, no matter how painful. As I conclude this first episode, I hope you hung around to this point because I succeeded in captivating you. I hope you were entertained by my analogies, explanations, and concepts. Lastly, I hope you also feel this idea is a noble one, worth pursuing, one you support and would like to partake in executing on with me. Really, this podcast is about hope. 
It's keeping the hope alive while darkness presently grows, believing there is still hope and taking action to foster it, to fan its flames. I hope to shine a bright light into the darkness so we can all see the value in keeping the hope together. Again, I propose this can come from seeking understanding while engaging in the uncomfortable conversations with gentle kindness and warmth. I have reasonable doubt. Do you not as well? What's the worst that can happen? Are you scared we might actually be able to get along and then can maybe work towards humanity's issues together? I don't want to be scared anymore. I want to understand. What about you? Let's talk then. What I will say to end this podcast with a little vulnerability, I don't want the job. Not really. I love a great conversation and to explore thoughts and ideas, but in a safe environment. To do it in the public's view though? I have insecurities causing some fear and anxiety. Afraid of being judged. Just barely confident enough to feel as though it's for me to speak on the matter. Still feeling as though it's a big risk. What do I know? Who cares about my opinion? How many will believe I should have kept it to myself? Who will think it's ridiculous? How much ridicule might I face? Despite the fear, I feel compelled to push forth regardless. Step into the storm rather than avoid it. See it through and endure its ferocity. Then come out the other end having faced it. We've all heard the quote, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Well, this is me trying to do something. I would not be trying if it weren't for those who put faith in me to do so. So thank you to those who encouraged me to start a podcast. Thank you to them who gave me the confidence to overcome the fears. I hope that after listening to this first episode, they are still convinced what I might have to say may be worth hearing. I hope you would feel the same. I hope you will continue to be part of this conversation. I hope.